Welcome to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore the gap in common understanding of digital culture, media, power, and politics created by the structures of digital technology. We are saddened to announce the indefinite suspension of our in-person salon series at Civic Hall. With the outbreak of the novel coronavirus, we will be shifting our efforts to creating the types of conversations we wanted to have in person to online. This means that, over the next few months, we will be releasing podcasts on both this channel as well as media meditations, producing video salons, live streams, and experimenting as we all adapt to social distancing and responsibility. Today, Dr. Jamie Cohen speaks with Marvel Comics writer Leah Williams. Williams is the writer of X Factor, Gwenpool Strikes Back, Amazing Mary Jane, and more. Williams and Dr. Cohen will discuss writing about marginalized voices, a writer's true responsibility to their audience, and developing self-aware comic books. Tell me about how you went from who you are to actually writing for Marvel. Writing for Marvel is something that never quite feels real to me, even though it's it's been, I guess, three years at this point um, since I did start writing for Marvel, but... There's always going to be this amount of um, cognitive dissonance, I guess you would call it, between the work that I do and the people I adore working with and kind of stepping back and seeing like, oh gosh, this is something so much larger than myself. Um, And I always feel enormously humbled by that. It's, It's given me... A purpose that I, I really lacked before, um, and I I went from being a comics fan writing X Men fan fiction to being a comics fan writing X Men fan fiction professionally, <laughs> and it's um, it's joyous. It's it's been a really amazing experience. What do you bring from? being like somebody who spent so much time like in the online communities but how does that help you as a writer for comic books or fiction writing it helped me writing fan fiction and spending a lot of time in fandom spaces online prior to writing comics for marvel really honed my sense of authenticity in terms of the character fan fiction itself as a medium Um, is a particularly effective tool in sharpening your your blade with uh, the way that you show certain characters because there is no audience more discerning than the people who are so driven to consume content with this character that they start reading fan fiction about it. These are the really dedicated, passionate fans and you get constructive criticism and sometimes, you know, uh, some, some angry words if you, like, misinterpret or uh, portray someone inauthentically and, you know, didn't give them the heads up of, like, a tag warning people that this character would be uh, out of character for the purposes of your work. So I, I had a really positive um, experience going through fan fiction because 
when I left film school, my understanding of my writing was that it was not good and people didn't like it. And I've since learned that this was more or less a product of um, the atmosphere and, and just being different. Uh, it's, it's something that I overcame from writing fan fiction and having people review my work anonymously, not knowing who I was, um, knowing nothing of me other than like what I was sending out into the ether. And they were reckless with their encouragement and I started to believe in myself too. Um, and that's why I started to actually pursue writing professionally. Um, it all came through fan fiction, really. They, these people don't know me. They had nothing to gain from giving me positive and encouraging words, but they did because they wanted me to keep writing. And to me, that was important and life-changing. So I did. Um, and writing comics for Marvel feels the same in that it's, you, you already have a responsibility to people because these characters are loved. Mm -hmm. You are not treading new ground in terms of what, what qualities are important to the character, what informs their decisions, that kind of thing. You, you can break new trail with their story, but in my opinion, and, and this isn't like a hard and fast rule for, you know, working with other, other legacy characters that do have 80 years of continuity backing them. Um, but in, in my decision or choice as a writer is that I, I think it's important to uphold kind of the core character mythos. And I have an eye for that because of writing fan fiction. I, I can tell when a character is being miswritten versus when they're like making a left turn. Um, there's, there's, there's a difference between the two. But Henry Jenkins always talked about like that influences like writers in the field as well. If I mean that that goes back to just fandom to now, unfortunately, like standum in many ways. Fandom itself, like the fan fiction, sometimes becomes so passionately approved of or codified that that bleeds into common culture itself. Oh, absolutely. So now, do you feel the responsibility to pay attention to the fan the fan fiction writers that are still out there, like online? I don't. Um, as soon as I started working for Marvel, I immediately understood that I, I can no longer spend time in fandom spaces the same way regarding um, X-Men because, well, I mean, first of all, like, I'm, I'm on a contract. I can't be looking at these things because what if there's an idea similar to something I've already got in the works, that kind of thing. It's just, you know, a, a, a very common sense kind of legal issue. I, I don't want yeah, to... Yeah, you have licensed material. Right. Yeah. I, I want to preserve the sanctity of my own ideas and not trespass on, you know, maybe one of these fan fiction writers will someday want to, like, pitch this to Marvel if I can't look at it now. So, out of like respect I, I took down my X-Men fan fiction um, except for one thing that I've written as a Marvel writer um, for a fan uh, it was part of Jay and Miles explained the X-Men fan fiction holiday exchange a couple years ago I entered and what they do is they match up um, writers fan fiction writers with other 
fan fiction writers and the it's like a secret Santa for fan fiction so um as a Marvel writer I surprised a fan with some custom uh Ileana Kitty Pride content and it was very very fun how cool um so that's the only fan fiction I've still got up these days but I I won't look at anything else just out of respect you have to be passionate about these characters and you know that there's continuity and licensing and long-form story storylines that you kind of have to adhere to what's your writing process to get into a part of a continuity stream and how much work is that to actually do especially when you're working with a big company like marvel it's a lot of work to get to know a character in a way that makes me feel qualified to then take on their voice um and this is my personal process as a writer it's it's really up to our discretion how we represent a character um, with a long continuity and how much homework we do about it. So I'm, I'm kind of a continuity zealot in, in my like character mythos thing because when I started writing for Marvel, um, I was so ready to finally like fix things that had really been bothering me as a reader and making me unhappy for so many years um, because what keeps a reader going through like a bad run of their favorite characters is the hope that it will improve mm -hmm. um, and I, I just kept waiting and waiting and waiting and then I was given the chance to change things myself and I was so ready so in the beginning I would read essential appearances of every character that I was being asked to write, even if it was somebody I was already super familiar with, because, you know, as, as you move forward through life, you gain new experiences, you look at things differently. So when you revisit uh, back issues of comics that you haven't read in many years, you will find something new. You, we call it story mining. Um, right. And... Uh, and by we, I mean in the X Slack, we call it story mining, which is going through just the wealth, the treasure trove of 80 years of comics from Marvel. And you find plot threads back there. You find things to pick up. Al Ewing does this all the time, and he does it brilliantly. Um, and it's it's really enriching and fulfilling to pick these things back up, especially you know, when you're researching it for a character that you are now the guardian of, that you were about to write. So that's what I start with. And in the beginning, uh, when I first started writing for Marvel, I would also check, like, the Twitter tag, the Tumblr tag. I would look through fan conversations about um, these characters because you do find uh, predominant themes being carried over that isn't something in the canon, but it is important to the character mythos still. It's, it's an interpretation of the canon that we all just accept as true um, in terms of who they are as a character. It's not something that like necessarily needs to be canonized because it's, it's their personality. It's a quality. So I would do that um, because it's really important to me that I see a character, especially one I might be approaching who's uh, less familiar to me, but it's 
brutally important to me that I see a character through the eyes of somebody who loves them. Mm-hmm. I need to understand what it is about this character that is beloved in order to write them. Um, but as I kept getting work for Marvel, I started to find myself in these tags and it ended with Gwenpool. <laughs> that was the last time that I ever um, kind of relied on that tactic because, you know, with Gwenpool, I, I looked at 4chan, I looked at Reddit, I looked at Twitter, I looked at Tumblr, I looked at Instagram because Gwenpool is such a unique entity that I wanted to have a really well-informed opinion uh, going into it uh, about what people loved especially with like the limitations of this particular project and by nature what it was like potentially Gwenpool's last ever story if if we failed and I definitely saw things that were not meant for me to ever see and didn't sleep well for a few nights (laughs) so I I learned like, okay, it is inappropriate for me to be doing this now. And what changed is now I go directly to people who I know are big fans of the character. Like when I was casting X Factor, um, Polaris, well, okay. Jordan says Polaris. I say Polaris. Um, Lorna, Lorna Dane. Mm -hmm. So Lorna was available, but I didn't feel confident with my read on her and I'm lucky that I do have friends I can just randomly reach out to and be like, hey, why do you love her? And <laughs> talk to me about this. And that's exactly what I need. It, it helps me understand the success of them um, as, as a licensed property, what resonates, what connects. So I got to see her through the eyes of like really devoted fans that the way they love her is like loving a rare flower that just so happens to bloom through a crack in the sidewalk concrete. Like it's, it's a kind of magic, uh, because she's had mischaracterization Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, and she's also a character who is canonically bipolar. Um, and it's been mishandled more Mm -hmm. often than not, more often than it's been portrayed sensitively. Yeah. So, once I, I started to understand kind of like the tragedy of Magneto's daughter and everything informing that, I realized the things that I hated about her was because I, I, was, I was reading the more harmful interpretations of her mental illness, right. the things that irritated me. Mm-hmm. And so now I have the opportunity to correct it. Mm-hmm. To give her justice and and to be honest about um, what living with bipolar disorder is like and how it would affect her. I think handling mental illness is tough as it is, um, but handling in the pages of a comic book is difficult. And I guess coming to an agreement of how to tell the story of that has to be handled with more of a human trait. And I like the way, just to reiterate what you said, I like the way you said you you talk to other human beings about your research. Because I know you you don't have researchers, right? Like... You do all your own work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's different than I think most texts, too, is, like, people who write comics have to do their own work. And I like where you sourced your information, but I think it's interesting that you settled on talking to other human beings about it 
to make sure that that was handled well. Like that, do you feel like that's uh, something you owe people or is that something that like is just who you are as a person or as a writer? It's definitely who I am as a person. My hard and fast rule in terms of my approach to these things is authenticity over everything. Um, if I am not being, I, I, there is no like scenario in which that would happen. I was going to say, if I'm not being honest, then blah, blah, blah. But if, if I'm not allowed to be honest, then I'm not doing it basically. Yeah. And honesty to me is like an authentic representation. It's not, um, like Lorna's in, in X factor, um, the upcoming X factor, I can say with absolute confidence that Lorna's bipolar disorder or Aurora's schizophrenia will never be a plot device. It's, it's never going to be a source of conflict. Um, we will explore it, especially living in Krakoa where they can cure cancer and AIDS. Um, it will be explored. It will never be exploited. And that's how I approach all of these things. Um, I think that going the extra mile and, you know, just bending over backwards to find what I call the one true north of it, um, the truth, the nuance in, in what to put on the page and how to explore this in a visual medium in a way that is dynamic and compelling and palatable for Marvel, you know, which is a giant corporation. Um, I love working for this giant corporation. It has given my life so much meaning and fulfillment, but I still understand that there are brand guidelines mm -hmm. and I can't just say fuck on every single page. <laughs> as much as you may want to. As much as I may <laughs> want to. Um, so it's it's kind of an obstacle course um, compared to something like I'm, I'm writing a creator-owned con uh, comic, which is my own uh, property, my own intellectual property and concept. Um, and the difference is writing a Marvel comic is like going to the gym. It is where I get strong. There's an obstacle course. I have to pull off all of these things, keep a bunch of different plates spinning, um, satisfy a diverse audience, uh, all at the same time. And it's exhilarating when it, it happens. Um, when I do manage to kind of walk that tight wire. Um, but so that's where I go to the gym. Yeah. A creator owned is where I live. So the, the, uh, I want to talk to you about nuance, like you just brought up, because one thing I think a lot of people forget, and like those who haven't read like Scott McCloud stuff, that a lot of your story is balanced by the visuals. So I think when you're handling somebody like Polaris or Aurora, it's like you need to know that the, the facial expressions that the artist is going to bring to it have to work with your writing as well. Do you have communication about that? Like, what's it mean to talk about a panel? So. It depends on what's important to the plot. I I try to give artists as much like freedom as possible, room to roam um, as I can. And if they want to go in a different direction, most times I won't say anything um, 
unless it is inauthentic to the character and I have to say like I'm sorry but this character wouldn't wear that this character uh, they have darker skin than this um, or something like that um, that's the only time that I I speak up about it but other times um, they you know make changes and then I just adjust in the lettering draft and that's part of the beauty of comics. It's it's kind of a living thing where a bunch of people are working on this. We've got not just the script, which is really a skeleton. It's a blueprint. And um, the art is what, it's the flesh. It's what makes it kind of a, a living medium. And lettering is what gives it a voice. It's what mm-hmm. makes it speak. Um, and colorists even add so much. Uh, skin hair nails teeth that's the coloring so you you can't be precious about it Mm -hmm. it's it's not your work the extremist miniseries was really great because you got to talk about characters that i don't think were often thought about in the way that you wrote them and so i'm speaking mostly about like fred here and some of the other characters that are i don't want to call secondary but some of them were villains and then they were the complicated and you were able to bring a very interesting new approach to the way you told these stories, but you had mentioned to me, and we're continuous here, is that some of the reading comics today, you know, and we'll switch to this conversation about digital media, reading comics today is really reading into it. The way that like Marvel fandoms themselves read into everything in the background. Everything means something. So how was it to balance like working with these characters plus also understanding that like panels themselves we're going to be read more than once. People were looking for clues to how the story would unfold. Extremist was my first miniseries that I had ever written for Marvel. And while that in and of itself is terrifying, um, just going into it, I recognized what a unique confluence of different events um, this would be to explore characters in a more nuanced way because we kind of had and this is why I picked the cast that I did um, specifically because of the way their unique approach to this world which Age of X-Man was Nate Gray's kind of false utopia that he purported was a mutant utopia but his version of utopia and if you know anything about like Nate Gray wanting to bang his mom's ghost, you would understand why this is his utopian vision. Um, Age of X-Men was a world where everybody had been brainwashed, and love is not allowed. Um, No procreation, everybody is supposed to be a test tube baby in this new world, except people who were brought over from the old one. Um, No relationships, no romance, nothing like that. It's all prohibited. And... I was given the, like, Dirty Glove book, (laughs) Um, which is kind of a theme with my work at Marvel. I I often get the hardest book to pull off, and it's something my editors are honest with me about going into it, because (laughs) I'm always like, yeah, I'm fucking ready, let's go, (laughs) this one's hard, but it... I do get the most challenging narrative obstacle courses where it's not just one thing. I can't just do what I want. I, I have to, like, for example, with extremists, um, I have the fascist book. 
It is 2019, mm-hmm. and I am writing beloved Marvel heroes, including openly gay characters in this world where their queerness has been completely canonically erased. Mm-hmm. And I chose to bring them into this world for that reason, because I wanted to explore the uh, like what queer erasure does to people, how it makes us feel. Um, so that was a choice that I made. Uh, but when the solicits came out and readers saw that the cast that I had picked, anybody who didn't know me and know that I'm a queer woman, um, they were terrified. They thought that it was just, you know, a... And, and I'm not saying this is a bad read on their part because Marvel has mishandled um, queerness and homosexuality more often than not, I would say. And there are, of course, like great examples of representation, but I don't think it it was unreasonable for people to be scared that like, why did you bring not just one, but two gay characters into this place where their queerness has been erased? what what are you doing and I, I I hadn't been expecting that reaction but of course once I saw it I was like oh god <laughs> I'm so sorry you kind of understood yeah. of course yeah. yeah and I had I had to ask people to trust me because they hadn't read enough of my work mm-hmm. yet I hadn't written enough yet for them to read to know where I would be going with it but we have an issue that is about queer rage mm-hmm. and it's like specifically three gay men um, because they meet up with another gay character who has also had his homosexuality brainwashed from him. And uh, they connect in this, like, false utopia for reasons they don't really understand, but there is a solidarity there. Um, And I got to devote a whole issue to it, and it it was terrifying because I kept feeling like, no way they're going to let me do this. No way. Marvel's not going to let me do this. But they did. And it's out there and it's canon. And it is an experience that these characters carry forward with them now through continuity still. And that's important. But Extremist was one of the most difficult obstacle courses I've been given. And some of it was my own doing, like choosing to explore queer erasure. And it was one of those things that for me, like, I could not have approached this any other way. That is my authentic story that I have to tell with this because (laughs) you asked a queer woman to write the fascist Gestapo book about a world without love. What, what the fuck do you expect? You know, what do they think? Right. Right. So there have been these times when I connect to fans of this, of a character that I'm writing that these moments kind of radicalize me a little because it allows me to see how how many people are hurting all at the same time in a really specific way. Um, and the blob is one of these characters. Mm-hmm. So I wrote Fred Dukes in Extremists. Um, I put him on my cast because I knew... Well, in this utopia, this false utopia that Nate Gray has invented, it claims to be without prejudice, so I'm going to be the book to prove it. And what we're going to do 
is we're going to have a Fred Dukes who has not been body shamed, has not been bullied, has not been vilified for being fat. And we're going to show what that looks like and how he would be different. And he's a team leader and he's sensitive and he's in love with Betsy Braddock and in a world where love is not allowed. So it, it wasn't like the forbidden romance in extremists wasn't between the two gay characters, um, which is never what I wanted to do. I wanted to show like, here's what queer friendship looks like. You know, this is something that you guys haven't seen before Mm -hmm. because there haven't been nuanced expressions of queerness on the page yet. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to do is show this incredibly hot superhero, (laughs) Betsy Braddock, uh, flirting with Fred Dukes and it's going to be sensitive and tender and he's going to treat her better than and they didn't enter into a relationship. Um, but I still purposely wanted their interactions to be the best she's ever been treated. And it still is (laughs) because she doesn't have a really good track record with Mm -hmm. boyfriends. Um, and all it was is they were friends, um, close friends, but Betsy, because she's a telebath, she was able to psychically pick up on the fact that Fred was having romantic feelings towards her. So one day after work, like imprisoning couples, um, she approaches him and offers to brainwash him. Like, you know, we're colleagues. If you, if you need me to just like get rid of that for you, like eternal sunshine. Right. Yeah. And he was horrified and he fled. And keep in mind, this is Fred Dukes, like the unstoppable and movable blob. The only thing that moves him in extremists is poetry and Betsy. (laughs) So being able to explore his feelings and his pain and inner life for the first time um, was something that I wanted to do. What I wasn't expecting was the way fans would react to it. And it changed my life. It fucked me up. I will never be the same. And it gives me a stronger spine moving forward to interject this in my world being a a collector but being more like just looking at the the field it was one of the first times i had ever seen so many screen grabs of frames there was these i think you handled the fred betsy scenes it was so delicate and it's it was so paused and paced that when I saw these frames it's like it was too hard to pick a singular frame so it was like sometimes pages the amount of screen grabs I saw how did that how did that make you feel I I wrote that I scripted it wanting it to be screen capped and shared online because in my head and this is something that I do now while writing I write with the expect expectation that screen grabs are going to go online so in this case I wanted, I was making an argument. I was saying, Fred fucking matters. Like, this character matters. He is so much more than being fat. And we're not going to body shame him. We're not going to make jokes at the expense of his weight. Like, that's, who cares? You know, he is so much more than this. So my part like a part of my you know weaponry in in accomplishing this was specifically writing 
two to three pages in, I guess it's issue two, maybe. Um, it's the Betsy issue. Mm-hmm. Each issue focuses on a different character. So was writing two to three pages uh, with like maximum intent to make it screen grabbable. And each panel is an effective, like evocative argument. And you could say, like, well, why aren't you doing that for every page? And I would say, well, I did in Gwenpool Strikes Back. I specifically wrote it knowing, like, I want this panel to work as a meme. I want this panel to work as a meme. It was something we thought of going into it. Because while the character herself hates the, like, lol memeiness of um, Deadpool comics, she is a shit poster. She, she is the meme maker. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, like, it worked. People were, like, memeing on Gwenpool from the first page. So it was something that I experimented with in Extremists because I wanted to give Freddie his every chance at being a hero. Every weapon that I could give him. Just really maximize his potential for that. And it... The way people responded to it so positively, like, it still breaks my heart backwards to this day because I learned how many different people are hurting in exactly the same way at the same time because they do find it relatable. Mm -hmm. So what comes out of Fred's mouth in terms of, like, his unrequited longing for his coworker is something that, to me, I recognize as a queer experience. It is having feelings for your friend who is the same sex and you don't want to talk about it because you're going to make things weird. Um, but it's, it's so much more universal than I thought it was. So you're writing in a print industry, but you're aware of the way that the, the comics are distributed in fandom spaces and digital spaces. So it does sound like, I think you've already answered that you knew you were aware of the reader being, making these into shareables, but also making sure that it's impactful, that the, the shareables themselves were, we're part of that. So I think that's very, I think that's awesome. Do you think, do you see that as a big wave in the comics industry now? Or is that just you? Or is that like a, a trend going on? It's my approach. I, I haven't seen anyone else doing it. So I, I can't speak to its ultimate efficacy. Um, I wouldn't be able to do it any other way because just like, you know, I, I had to answer the question of like, what about um, gay people and, and extremists, like you say, there's no love. Okay. Well, what about, you know, being gay? Does does that count? Like I, I wouldn't be able to take a different approach because for me, um, going into it as like online and ruined by the internet as I am, I I can't turn that part of myself off. Mm -hmm. I can't ignore it. So it's, it's always impacted uh, whatever I've written, whether it's from like, you know, tag surfing in the beginning, um, or more, more conscious decisions in terms of what's, what's getting, um, shared online. X Factor is kind of like the final Pokemon evolution of it. Um, you know, experimented with it in extremists, really like sharpened it in, in Gwenpool and, making it a part of the plot in X-Factor. Well, Gwenpool is aware of the, the, the book. Her role over the course of history has always been the, different than Deadpool, obviously, but very aware of the fact that there's pages that exist. And so the physicality in the book is really 
interesting to think about because it requires the reader to read the books twice because you kind of have to go through it and then just be like, wow, okay. And then go back again and see the path in which she takes. If you want to talk about how you handled moving Gwen into her future, like what was that like? It, it was terrifying the whole time. <laughs> I, um, so the story of Gwen Pull Strikes Back is there's kind of a synchronicity in terms of what's happening in the book and what was actually happening behind the scenes. And thank God we could use this character as a mouthpiece to voice these anxieties because she is self-aware and breaks the fourth wall. Um, because I literally would not have been able to write this any other way. Um, it, it is the authentic, <laughs> most straightforward way. And thank God I was allowed to pursue this. But basically, Gwenpool as a property was under threat. Um, the higher-ups weren't really sure we still needed her and gave Jordan White, you know, like, one last chance to, to prove her worthiness to, to them. But the trick was, and this is another example of um, an obstacle course book that I've been given with different hurdles, we couldn't go backwards. So she couldn't be written by... Um, Chris Hastings, who is her creator and responsible for the Gwen that everybody knows and loves and like the fan favorite Gwen, the, the one who has merch and um, sells comics. <laughs> the, uh, we had to break new trail. We had to show her in a new light differently. We had to expand her audience. We had to prove to the higher ups um, what makes her worthy of staying in continuity of, of being allowed to exist because she wouldn't have even been given the dignity of like an on page death or a mention. She would have just been quietly shelved mm -hmm. and you know, nobody would know why the story of her is her name is Gwendolyn Poole and she's a comics fan, comics super fan from our world. She is one of us. Uh, who has found herself in the Marvel Universe. And over time, she's been around since about 2016 or so, so she's had just a, you know, lightning-fast uh, progression through comics in terms of, like, exposure and popularity because she is a self-aware character. She's a snowball effect. She takes on many qualities as she gets written by different writers, and even though it's such a short amount of time, the four years that she's existed and her like few appearances um there's an existing character mythos where certain appearances are you know recognizable as being miswritten and the run unbelievable gwenpool written by her creator chris hastings is recognized as like the one real gwen even though we see her a lot out of continuity or out of that run so knowing that Gwen's miswritten in the first three issues of Gwenpool because I knew the higher-ups were watching me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were watching if we were going to be able to sell enough comics um, of this and broaden her audience and uh, like get some new readership for her. So it was, again, one of those things where existing fans of Gwen... I, I had to ask them to trust me. That's yeah, a lot of pressure. <laughs> it, it's it's a lot of pressure, and and that in itself was terrifying. But I had to like fans of of the real Gwen, unbelievable Gwenpool, Gwen, 
um, to just trust me that like the reason you're seeing her differently, there's a reason for it in the, in the book itself. One of my like proclivities, I guess, as a writer is that I can make anyone feel exactly how I want them to feel about a certain character. I'm really empathetic with them mm -hmm. and it's something that I tend to do over and over again in books um, because I want people to love this character the way that I love them. Yeah. So I did it with Freddy and Extremis and um, I wanted to do it with Gwenpool to a very extreme degree because so much was on the line. Her entire existence was, yeah. was hinging on this. So, which is the stress of the whole book. It's all, it's all through, you feel it. I actually felt it. Yes. It's an effective text. Yes. It's, it's, well, I'm glad to hear that it's effective, but <laughs> I, I'm, my emphatic yes is like, yes, it was very anxiety inducing yeah. to work on it. Um, and terrifying, but I, I found out we succeeded we had done it um, right after I had turned in the script for issue three. And that's when I was like, okay, gloves are off. Let's make this count. Like, you know, I knew that we were going to, I, I had planned for the moment where we were going to have her different appearances show and like in one page be able to, literally list the differences between how writers oh, yeah. depict her mm -hmm. differently. That was something I was always building towards. But once I knew we were kind of in the clear, I was like, let's have fun with it. <laughs> let's make fun of ourselves. Um, and I'm so glad we were able to. So one of the things that affected me most personally in Gwenpool and Extremist is the, the way in which you deal with emotion. So do you want to talk about a little bit of responsibilities of the author in the age of this type of political situation? My my kind of core operating belief, and, and this is what informs everything about my writing process, and this is who I was before writing for Marvel, is that anything with an audience has a responsibility. Um, it is your responsibility as a, a creator, as a writer, to construct a series of mirrors for your audience because anything you give them that denies their existence that pretends they could not be a possibility in this world you're asking them to support um it's it's irresponsible and it's harmful because the way that that pans out the the effect of it is and let's use you know we've been talking about queer erasure so let's use that as an example but what that does to lgbtq people when you deny their existence in a work of art is it makes them feel monstrous you push them into the shadows and you tell them that they don't matter and of course that you know may not have been your intent maybe you're just trying to tell a story about like a straight couple but if it's set in a world that is not some hetero hellscape there would still be gay people um and you it is incredibly irresponsible to present this false narrative of what the world looks like i wrote an article for the atlantic about how hollywood whitewashed the old west um 
and it's true. They, they used narratives of really famous black cowboys and wrote roles for John Wayne. So we have this really like fictionalized version of what the Wild West looked like. Um, and I think it is deeply irresponsible and toxic. So it is not that I like have any sort of, you know, political belief that I bring into my comics, but I, I am radically honest and that includes emotional, um, vulnerability. And the way that I live my life is intentionally because it does help my writing, but I, I keep my heart open. I feel everything. I, I'm not guarded. I have no emotional defenses and I live like an exposed nerve ending because it helps me write. It helps me write authentically. And to me, there is nothing more important than giving an authentic experience. Emotional authenticity is something that I've long waited to see from my favorite characters and being able to finally have characters like voice some of their internal feelings like um, Freddy in Extremists or Emma Frost in X-Men Black Emma Frost. It is enormously cathartic for me. It, it feels like I, I, I get to alleviate myself of some of the sympathetic pain for this character that I've been carrying around forever. Um, but being emotionally raw on the page is where it's authentic is really important to me. That's excellent. A big part of our show, let me just take off of that. A big part of our show is authenticity because digital media kind of flattens or commodifies authenticity to see like authenticity being pushed into that space, but also being delivered from the page to the person is so refreshing like as a reader like it's, it's just not often it feels refreshing as a writer it's like absolutely something that i i am intentionally scripting into these things and you know whether it's from a standpoint of like i expect this screenshot to be shared around online without context it's something that i talk about with my collaborators too um in terms of my goals because I, I I want feedback and like the best possible delivery of this messaging system. So do you have uh, something to, to just to talk to us about like just buying comics or being part of a comics industry knowing we're going to the 2020s? One of the things that made me empathize with Gwen while writing Gwenpool Strikes Back is the fact that she does not want to leave that world. She does not want to return home to our Earth, our New York, our political situation. And that made me... I would do the same, I think. If, if I, you know, wasn't so tethered to the people I love here, if I had Gwen's family, who she's not very close with, and they're really harsh with her because she's she's not as well functioning in our world. Um, I I would never want to come back. Um, so that's that's what the fight was to to preserve her her existence and her happiness. Um, and I think that she 
in, in all the complications and, and snowball effect of her is that in itself, um, and the fandom interaction is really representative of what's different about modern comics. And I think that the self-awareness is also something that absolutely informs the new X-Men line because I mean, Jonathan Hickman, he's a genius. And I don't say that in like a hyperbolic way. I, I say that in like, he says this shit in meetings and I'm just like, Oh God, he's good. Like, Whoa, what? (laughs) And he, he has a macro view of everything. He just an aerial view where he can see how the entire fandom feels about it. How, you know, the, the characters, like if I'm on the ground and I have a really granular grasp of character. That's who I am as a, a writer. He's he he's the deity. He has everything. He has that granular grasp. He has the self-awareness. And he also has like just really great storytelling proclivities um, that informs everything that he does. And being able to like have that guidance over the entire line because he is reading, you know, all of our books and, and giving feedback and looking at outlines and seeing how everything fits together. It's like some rain man shit. It's crazy, but that's the future of comics. There is no going backwards to go backwards and tell something that isn't aware of itself, isn't aware of the world. Um, or that it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, like, that's, you know, that's the past. That's that's what feels inauthentic to readers. And really thank you for having the time to talk to us. Oh, thank, yeah, thanks for having me. This is an exciting conversation. Thank you for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. You can follow Williams on Twitter at MyMonsterIsChic. That is MyMonsterIsChic. You can follow Dr. Cohen on Twitter at New and Digital. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and your favorite podcast app. Leave a five-star review to help us if you can. Make sure to share your thoughts on Twitter with the hashtag DigitalVoidPodcast or email us at digivoidmedia at gmail.com and stay in touch by visiting digitalvoid.media where you can find out the latest information about our work and subscribe to our newsletter.